The Axe of the Blood God. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, U.S. Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cap Bailey, and joining me today is an old friend. Indeed. Returning from our days at GamePro, Role Players Realm. It's been a long time. Please welcome back Richard in Japan. Hi, everybody. I'm Richard from Kotaku.com, and uh, me and Cat go way back, so we're ready to talk about RPGs. Richard from Kotaku, how are you doing these days? I'm doing quite well. Writing a lot, a lot about uh, all the popular Japanese games. It's what I do. So um, I brought you on the show because mm-hmm. it seems that you've played 70 hours of Xenoblade Chronicles X. And I when I had uh, Elliot Gay on the show a few weeks ago to mm-hmm. talk about kind of what was going on in Japan... Uh, it was like a few days before Xenoblade Chronicles X had come out, mm-hmm. and I had checked it out, but I think I was in, under embargo to be able to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we're going to get some more complete thoughts, and then, you know, this is a good opportunity to also talk about Xenoblade Chronicles, the original, mm-hmm. which you played, like, way back when, back mm-hmm. when it was just in Japanese, Yep. so we can also talk about that. So anyway, Xenoblade Chronicles X... It's been out for quite a while. You've played a whole bunch. Tell me, what are your initial thoughts? My initial thoughts are actually not that positive. Oh, um, no. Crap. Which Everything I, I feared is, is coming true. I know. Um, how do I put this? It's a slog. It is a slog. Um, and, like, the fact that I'm 70 hours in and I'm past the halfway point in the story should tell you that. And that there's only 12 story missions in the whole game. So that's Whoa. also a thing. Only 12 um, story missions in the whole game, okay. Yeah. And, By the way, we're each not going to spoil like, anything. No, I'll just say, like, each of those is, like, about 20 minutes long. Mm-hmm. Um, those story missions. And they're, basically, they're spaced a certain amount of levels apart. Like, they're usually about five levels apart each story quest. So you have to go grind five levels before you can do the next one. Um, and that takes a long time. (laughs) Let's just put it that way. Um, but, uh, I want to be clear there. Basically the way it's set up is there's the story missions and then there's what's called Kizuna quests, which means bonds, bond quests. And those also have little story chunks. They're basically little side stories about all the people in the space crashed space colony where it all takes place called new los angeles and you meet these people and you learn about their problems and you help them out and whatever and you get little cutscenes for each of those and there's a couple dozen of those quests um and all the remaining quests of which there are dozens upon dozens are your standard quest board quests no real plot just go out kill something whatever so it's almost kind of the opposite of Xenoblade Chronicles the original which which was a much more guided experience uh so what's kind of the bulk of the gameplay just going out and doing fetch quests yeah pretty much mm. <laughs> um like don't get me wrong they do try to mix it up sometimes it'll be go out and kill this thing with really crappy weapon i've had that quest a couple times or go kill this boss monster that only spawns during a rainstorm 
um, things like that. Uh, but for the most part, yeah, it's go out, kill stuff, or go out, collect stuff, or something along those lines. So, Xenoblade Chronicles X is... it, Even though it's a sequel to Xenoblade Chronicles, it's not set in the same universe. Yeah. Um, and it... The, the the art is very different. It's more... I, it's almost like they're wearing Mass Effect power suits and that sort of thing. And you're kind of turned loose in this giant world to fight monsters and do as you will. Mm. So have you spent a lot of time just exploring? Has there been a lot to explore? Oh, yes. Like, that's that's definitely the best part of the game. Like, I find the battles to be a slog. I find the questing to be boring. Uh, the story is so thin that it's a little tough to get into. Uh, but the exploring, I've spent hours exploring. And every hour I've spent just going around the world. Uh, you can basically, uh, the entire giant continent that you start on is three giant zones out of five, which is the whole game. Um, and in these zones, they're split into little quadrants, and each quadrant has something special about it. Sometimes there's data points where you will basically find this point uh, somewhere in the environment, put down a basically a probe that then connects to the internet you're building on the planet, which you then subsidize to make money. Wait Not a minute, a joke. you're basically a telecoms agent? <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's part of your job, absolutely. You're working for Fantasy tel- uh, Comcast, laying down Fantasy Internet? Oh, yep, no. you gotta you got to put down the infrastructure, you know? And then you tax the hell out of the users. Like, that's actually literally how you make money in the game. Like, monsters don't drop anything. Monsters don't drop any... Well, they drop... Of course, they drop, they drop materials, but raw materials don't sell for much, and you'll use them for crafting. It's a much better use of your time and money. But, like, yeah, you find the data points, and then you install certain additions into the data points to collect money and that's how you get paid it's kind of like uh final fantasy 8 where you were paid a a salary over you know you'd just leave the game Mm. on for a certain amount of time Mm. and you'd make money it's the exact same thing for uh, xenoblade but it's based on your internet infrastructure that you have built across the planet so when you say that the exploration is easily your favorite part Mm -hmm. so in the sense of you're like walking across the world and say there are caves that you can just find or Lots of interesting dungeons, or it's just fun to try and walk across the landscape. Like, in what sense is the exploration super fun? It's a really beautiful planet. Okay. It's uh, very beautiful and very alien. Um, a lot of games have tried to create alien worlds, and the way they create an alien world is, oh, look, there's a weird tree, or, oh, that glows a little weird. But um, Xenoblade Chronicles, like, has rock formations that could not exist on Earth. Um, and you know, you'll have just these giant, like even the desert is beautiful. It's got like sand waterfalls in the distance and giant alien artifacts spreading across the horizon. And you can walk up to them, you know, no matter how far away they are, it's all very seamless and feels like a big giant world. Um, I put up a video, uh, yesterday or two days ago, uh, that was me running from one end of the continent to the other. And even in the straightest line I could make it, that took me uh, 31 minutes. Yeah, Jeremy was just lamenting, actually, that open world games, like he just, he wrote an article about this for US Gamer. He mm-hmm. was lamenting that open world games don't really have true exploration anymore. That 
it's they're all very guided experiences with tons of little icons on their map and he created a little uh header image that has just like five billion little like <laughs> uh landmarks and things to do and I think Witcher Three was better than most games about that, but it sounds like Xenoblade Chronicles X is truly a freeform exploration experience. That's really what they want you to do. They want you to grab some quests and just go out. And you can try to get the quests or not, or like try to accomplish them. But I no, I I really had a lot of fun like just going and seeing where I could go in the world and um, you know, some places are blocked off, and they're usually blocked off by big giant monster ready to eat your face until you're a certain level. Um, but besides that, it's it's really a lot of fun to like look at the giant rock formations and stuff and be like, can I get up there? How do I get up there? And trying to figure out your way to jump up there. Uh, and the gravity on the planet is noticeably lower than Earth, so you're able to jump incredible distances. It's kind of like John Carter. They were kind of, Nintendo was emphasizing that when I was doing the demo with mm. them. Like, they, they handed me the gamepad and said, just explore and do things. And I was like, all right. And so I just started going through the story. Because <laughs> that's what I do, right? Okay. Right. Uh, I can't help critical pathing RPGs. Even when I'm, when I'm playing a big RPG that I have, like, so many options and things to do, like, I'll finish it and, like, uh, like this big 70, 80 hour game in like the course of 30 hours because I'm just like, yep, well that's pretty cool and if, if, if like I see something that's kind of in the distance that looks interesting, I'll wander off the critical path to go do it, but otherwise, like I'm mostly content to play through the story, do some quests, level up my party mm-hmm. and if I find something particularly interesting, I'll go play it that's just the way I do it, but it doesn't sound like criti- the critical path is particularly rewarding in Xenoblade no, Chronicles X. absolutely not. But I will say they do reward um, your exploration. Because like I said, you, you, you can find like the, the, the internet points. You can find those. But every zone, and there's, there's tons. There, there's got to be probably a hundred or more of these little zones on the map. And each of them has some sort of an objective. Sometimes it's a data point. Sometimes it's kill a super strong monster in the area but by killing but but by accomplishing whatever the special thing to do in that area is you unlock fast travel in that area so that that? really rewards you for you know you just go out there and you explore and then you go oh hey uh, there's a data point here now i have fast travel all the way there and eh, that's nice how does it compare to xenoblade chronicles the original in your mind i've no, I wasn't exactly the biggest fan of the first Xenoblade Chronicles. Um, so a oh, little no. disclaimer there. But that's because of how it played. Okay. Um, both the Xenoblade and Xenoblade X have the MMORPG battle system. Mm-hmm. You yes. know, you auto-attack, and then you press your shortcut buttons to do special attacks, and that's what you do. That's the game. Um I'm of the strange variety of people who, if I wanted to play an MMORPG, I'd play an MMORPG. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And putting what I consider an inferior battle system into a single-player game, you know, a a battle system specifically designed for all the lag and latency that comes from an online game, 
um, it it seems backwards and annoying to me, and everything slows down, especially in in Xenoblade X, where you'll just go out there and you'll fight, you'll just go to a random encounter and spend two three minutes on a random encounter, and you'll get nothing for experience points afterwards, and you just waste all that time. And I felt always feel like you know I'm not really doing anything in battle. I just walk in and I push the shortcut buttons, and eventually I win, you know, and that's it. So you're not um, seeing a lot of death to the combat. No, I mean there there are interesting things in the combat, like the fact that to like your party members will call out for you to do a certain attack, a certain kind of attack, a heal or a buff or a sword attack or a ranged attack or whatever. They'll call out for one of those, and then if you use one of those skills while they're calling out for you, it heals the whole group, and mm-hmm. that's your main way of healing in the game. I think that's pretty cool. Um, it makes it so you don't need a healer, a dedicated healer in your group at all times. See, my recollection of Xenoblade Chronicles mm. is that most of the death is the way that you combine attacks. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a lot of min-maxing to be done in terms of customizing your characters, so the gear the gear does have a fair number of stats and everything, it, but it sounds like they built out the customization a fair bit. Oh, God, yeah. Like, so there's so much one. to do on the back end. Um, right, so if, what, if you what like can your you menus, do now? What can you do now compared to Xenoblade Chronicles that you couldn't do before? Oh, well, that's a good question. Uh, I haven't played Xenoblade Chronicles in almost, what, four or five years now? So forgive my memory on this. I'll just tell you what Xenoblade Chronicles X has, and you can tell me if it was in the original or not at this point. Um, but basically, now, uh, whatever armor you buy and wear you make that armor more popular, which allows the company to prosper and make even better armor than they would normally for cheaper prices for you. So you're kind of like advertising their gear. And that kind of gear that you get through advertising is is just so cool looking. It's amazing, no matter which company you tend to support. So that's one thing. Another thing is um, there's a lot of armor can be customized. They have open slots. You can build... um, you know, I don't remember what they're called, like orbs, basically, to put in those slots. Um, gosh, there's the mech customization, all that good stuff. Uh, gosh, what else? You can, of course, make weapons and items and, yeah, lots of stuff. Uh, drops, every, everything drops something, and there's items scattered everywhere for you to pick up, and they're all useful in some way, uh, crafting-wise. Yeah. So the armor, the the armor popularity thing was definitely not in Xenoblade Chronicles, mm-hmm. and it reminds me. Well, I I was thinking of the world ends with you actually. No, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. How the fashions would change, but, based, yeah. and they did change somewhat based on what you were wearing. But there are also classes in this one, right? Yeah, yeah, there are. Um, the I your mean, there supporting are party in members the original. are classes. Uh, you're basically allowed to choose any class and right. switch between them um, whenever you want, basically. Uh, you, you, but you have to get... Like, basically, you start with the base class. You get that base class to level 10. Then you unlock the next level of classes. You do those. You get those to level 10. And then those split off into different trees, etc., etc. And eventually you level them all the way up. Uh, each um, one of your skill classes has a specific weapon loadout, one melee weapon and one ranged weapon, that are unique to that class, basically. 
or at least when you get up to the advanced classes, that's how it starts to work. So like one will have a knife and a machine gun and another one will have a uh, lightsaber and Gundam style dragoons. Yes. And yes, I did play that class. So wait, you get to, do you get to drive around a giant mech? You do, but it is a pain in the ass to get. Really? Uh, oh yeah, you get it uh, after the sixth chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so ha- literally halfway through the game, you, you get this thing where it's like, hey, do you want a mech? Well, good for you. I've got eight fetch quests you need to do to get licensed. Wow. And so how intense do, are the fetch quests? Uh, at that point, I just grabbed the walkthrough, cause, the Japanese walkthrough, because I was just like, I'm not going to be bothered anymore by this. But even with that, it still took a while, because it's the gambit of quest. It, like, if you were actually just going by what the game says, it's like, oh, yes, uh, you need a specific uh, flower that blooms only by this, only on this side of the desert. Like, and you're like, the desert's a big place. It's like a third of the game. Where? You know, and so I had to look up exactly where to go. It's it's very monotonous, but I think it maybe took me two hours when I knew what I was doing. And then after that, you get your first mech, which I promptly destroyed and couldn't figure out how to replace. That was fun. How did you I, destroy it? Just like in a boss battle? No, no, it's even stupider. Um, I actually did a post on this on Kotaku, along with accompanying animated GIF if, for people who are interested in seeing my stupidity firsthand. Kotaku does love their animated GIFs. I do. I make them a lot. I abuse the hell out of them. Uh, but basically, there was a data point, an internet access point, in the middle of this canyon, on like, like bottomless canyon on an island. And I was like, now that I have this mech with jump jets that transforms into a motorcycle, surely I can make the jump to the data point. Uh, spoiler warning, I uh, didn't make the jump. <laughs> and then you I wasn't even close. And then you couldn't figure out how to replace your No, And then I load back, mech. and I'm like, oh, where's my mech? <laughs> and I'm like, and I, and I see this little, like, X over the mech symbol. I'm like, what the hell does that mean? Where do I even go? Like, there's one thing about Xenoblade Chronicles X, is it doesn't really hold your hand at all. It's just kind of like, oh, mm-hmm. you lost your mech. Guess you better figure out how to fix that. Uh, so I wandered around a lot until I finally found a menu in one of the buildings, because they're not all together, that, that was like, oh yeah, we can repair it. You have insurance, but if you destroy your thing two more times, your mech's gone forever. Bye. I'm like, oh. Wow. Well, die in a fire. Thank you. Uh, and, and by gone forever, I mean it's broken. It's completely broken. They can't fix it. So you have to go and buy a new mech. Man, that's um, punitive. Yeah, so like having your mech get destroyed is is a horrible experience. And now normally what you can do is when it's destroyed, you have like the chance to eject. It's a quick time event, and if you do it perfectly, I don't think your mech gets destroyed. Um, oh. But the thing is, when you fall into a giant cliff, there is no quick time event. It's right. just gone. And uh, so I felt dumb, really dumb. And I, I think it's later on. I think in uh, maybe chapter nine or ten. I think is after that you get the flight license class, so your mech can actually fly. Uh, but I haven't done that one yet. Is it like Macross style? You're turning into a jet? Uh, I don't think so. I think you're still a motorcycle. <laughs> still a motorcycle, but... I think your jump fly. jets just actually let you fly. <laughs> so, like, looking at the, the mech on the cover of the game, and that mm-hmm. definitely doesn't look like a motorcycle. Oh, yeah, definitely. Transforms into a motorcycle. Absolutely. Transforms into a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. A really big motorcycle. Yeah. Okay, it's 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 like uh, Robotech the movie. There you go. 
It's okay. exactly like that, NECA. So Megazone 23 for all you other people. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. So the the picture that I'm getting is of a really kind of free-form exploration game with like things that you're just trying to get to, which pretty much jives with what I saw when I was playing it with Nintendo. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting that that's the direction that the guy who made Xenogears is taking the series, given that those games are mostly known for their really kind of over-the-top stories. Uh, it mm-hmm. seems like he's moved away from that more and more and more to and yeah, more about something the completely world. different. Yeah. How do you feel about that change? I'm I'm one of the people who puts great value in plots of games, which is why I love RPGs so much, because mm-hmm. they're usually all about the plot. Um, and this one is pretty much, instead of a plot, it's a setting. It's, you you know, Earth decimated, space colonies sent out while Earth is destroyed, kind of in a crossfire. It's not like they were trying to destroy Earth. It was just, we were in the wrong place in the wrong time. And two alien forces were just duking it out around Earth. And so there goes the planet. And you might be the last space colony of all humans. You don't know. Um, but you find you crash land on this alien planet while being pursued by one of the, uh, the alien forces. And now humanity's got to make a go of it. Like, that's the plot of the game. Is you've got to try to make friends with who you can and explore this new world because that's where you're stuck and this is your new home and so it's a setting right (laughs) sounds a lot like the plot to the original xenogears in the you remember that opening cutscene yeah that was one of the best opening cutscenes that i've ever seen in a game Mm -hmm. because you have no idea what's going on there's a spaceship it's like under attack like everybody's ejecting Mm -hmm. and then they end up on a planet you it was that you see one woman on a planet, I think. And and then you only later find out that that happened thousands upon thousands of years before, and they repopulated the world. So mm-hmm. humans came from space. Mm-hmm. So Xenoblade Chronicles X is almost kind of the prologue to Xenogears, so it's probably Maybe. Different it universe. could be. It very well could be. He likes to revisit those themes quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And um, this one, like, I'm not going to... I'll say this. The plot does have some twists, which is very nice. Um, what a twist. Yeah, th- there was actually one that, that w- is very much legitimately, oh, well, that changes everything kind of twist. Um, so it was good that, that that exists. I'm not saying the plot is just, you know, a straight run through, you know, run down the numbers or whatever. It does have some interesting points in it. It's just not much of a plot. <laughs> it's um, go out, explore, help the city. Yeah. And that's in part because you're creating your own characters, right? Um, like you create your own character in this. You create your own character, but the rest yeah. of them are are set. Um, another thing I don't particularly like in my RPGs. I like creating the main character. Do you? Well, yeah. I, okay. I don't mean like a shepherd. Like a shepherd is one thing, but uh, having yourself be the faceless person with no backstory just thrown into the world. Um, yeah, I'm pretty okay like with that. that, actually. Really? Yeah, I recorded a... Uh, actually, you know, I just recorded an interview with Brad Muir, who mm-hmm. did Massive Chalice, mm-hmm. and we talked a little bit about this, but 
I I like being able to kind of create narratives in my own head. Mm. I like giving a being given a canvas and just being allowed to imagine everything. So mm-hmm. when the game explicitly lays everything out, there's a certain remove to it mm. that I've increasingly found less enticing. Interesting. Which, now, in the case of a really terrific story-based game like, say, Persona, I get super invested in it anyway. Mm-hmm. And even though I didn't relate at all to the main character, who was some high schooler, <laughs> a guy, um, I still... I was able to engage with that group of people because I really liked them. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, I I like to have things kind of left to the imagination. What do you yeah. think of the art? Uh, like in the game? In the game of Xenoblade Chronicles X. Um, I think, other than the character designs, which are kind of atrocious, I really love the art design of the planet, of the mechs, of the armor. I love all of it. It's, the armor is super sweet. It's like Mass Effect. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it goes so far beyond. Uh, I went with like the some more like what we'll call mage style armor and it grows like horns like demon horns on it and spikes off the armor uh that kind of stuff but there's then there's also another set of armor which becomes more and more like utilitarian like army style like in mass effect there's that set of armor as well and then there's um stuff that's more like um what do you call it Uh, a cowboy poncho you know from like a western there's a whole set of costume or of armor that's kind of like that, like a gunslinger attire. That's really cool, too. Done and done. Gunslinger poncho right here. <laughs> um, did you ever play Fantasy Star Online? Um, Fantasy Star Online? No, I played the second one. You played the second one? Okay, um, how does it compare to that? Uh... They're both kind of sci-fi fantasy style things, uh, but Fantasy Star Online 2 is, it never makes you feel like you're in a big world, a big open world. It's more like you're in a randomly generated set of corridors that have been assembled into a dungeon-like layout, and you and your team go and do whatever. Um, Xenoblade Chronicles X is chucking you into a world. (laughs) I was only thinking of Fantasy Star Online, because... Mm. Xenoblade Chronicles X feels very much like a offline MMORPG in my mind. It does. It it is. Although there are interesting online counterparts. Like there is there is multiplayer stuff you can do in the game, although I haven't really played around with it too much, but except it's lacking the things that I like about MMORPGs, which is, yeah. you know, partying up and doing these really involved like raids and everything. Yes. So it's more like what people kind of imagine that they would want to do in, in an MMORPG, which is wander around the world and see what they can find, which people do. And that's mm-hmm. pretty cool. It's, it's interesting what you're telling me. <laughs> I, <laughs> have I broken your heart or have I made you excited? I don't know. I I guess I will have to see how I feel about it when I actually play it. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not normally given to be the kind of person to just wander around and explore, so it'll be kind of a different paradigm for sure. Mm -hmm. I am a little bit higher on the battle system of Xenoblade than you are, and it's pretty similar to the original Xenoblade Chronicles. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Just because 
I I liked the way that the the characters interacted. I liked the the build up and release of like large uh, your kind of your superpowers. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked the diversity of the boss battles. How are the boss battles, by the way, in Xenoblade Chronicles X? Um, pretty much the same as the other battles. Only everything has more HP. <laughs> everything uh, has more HP. Okay, yeah, so. that's pretty much it. That's the fun part about Xenoblade Chronicles, the original, was that, you know, you you really had to put some thought into your your class, or to your party composition, because if you just went in, say, with Shulk, mm-hmm. and you tried to kill a, um, I don't know, that if you tried to kill an organic person with Monado, you would do no damage, essentially. Right, right. So you had to like move things around and as you got more and more party members your tactical options got more and more diverse so certain bosses were really given toward uh certain party combinations so well let's see in this in in xenoblade chronicles x uh there's basically three three elemental types there's um like normal bullets ether and of course i'd forget the third one uh but it's basically three different types of weapons like like kind of a laser a bullet or this kind of thing in between and um certain bosses are weak to one element and strong to another but you can always go and buy a weapon of similar power that is of you know the element that the enemy is weak to um, the other thing that's kind of interesting is there's always multiple attack points on every enemy. Um, and sometimes if you hit like an armored leg, you're going to do a lot less damage than you hit it than if you hit it in the soft underbelly. So it's kind of important to lock on to whatever their weakest point is whenever you're attacking. Um, oh yeah, I I remember now that I was thinking about Valkyrie Profile Somaria when I was playing that game, mm. which for all its faults, had an interesting battle system. Mm. Did you ever play Somaria? No, I never did. In Somaria, you would run in a kind of 3D environment, and then the game would flip to 2D, and when you were attacking, like, you wanted to align yourself with the enemy in such a way that you could attack certain body body parts. Mm -hmm. Because if you could break off those body parts you would get, that was how you got all of your items for crafting and that kind of thing. Oh. I think actually it's somewhat similar then. Um, Because you do get certain special items if, like, you're fighting a giant scorpion, let's say, and you attack the stalk of the tail and break it off mid-battle, for example. Um, You do, I do believe you get special items from that. So I assume that you didn't end up playing the 3DS version of Xenoblade Chronicles? Did not, no. (laughs) Just took a pass on it? Took a straight-up pass. Um, It was a game that I enjoyed for the plot, but um, the battle system... I mean, it's the same reason I don't particularly like Final Fantasy XII. I just felt like the battle system is not something I wanted to deal with. Hmm. I I don't know. I just like it faster. I like my battle system much faster. Right, you like the Tales games. The Tales games, I like it because they're involved. Like, the combat's really involved. I like traditional turn-based because, mm. you know, it's good and quick. Um, I like a good it's... turn-based RPG, but I, I feel like Xenoblade Chronicles is a, a suitable, I should say, uh, compromise between the two. Um, it's not 
it's not completely real time, but it has enough of the mm. tactical depth of a turn-based game that I don't hate it too much. Mm-hmm. It's only when it starts getting like hack, hack, slash, slash, and that's all I'm doing, uh, a la Kingdom Hearts, that I start getting really bored. Mm. So, okay. So we're of differing opinions on the no. on the combat system in Xenoblade Chronicles. Which, which is good enough. <laughs> I'm yeah. glad some pe- I'm glad many people enjoy it. Like, don't get me wrong. Just because I don't particularly enjoy it, it doesn't mean that... Oh, well, no, it's uh, divisive, you know, actually. Um, I've heard people say that it's not nearly deep enough. I've heard a lot of people say that they really like it. I know that Jeremy... Jeremy was not a fan of the Xenoblade Chronicles combat system when mm. we reviewed it together for Xeno, uh, for the Nintendo 3DS. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I never got a really never really got a chance to get around to talking about Xenoblade Chronicles on this podcast and I <laughs> I almost feel like I never really will. <laughs> and it's not because I'm a hater or whatever. It's just that Jeremy was unavailable at the like key point when I was supposed to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And then when I later when I was like, "Do you want to come on the show and talk about it?" He was like, "I don't really have a lot to say about that game." <laughs> he didn't like that game. So, yeah, it was okay. I was surprised. I was surprised because it had gotten so much hype. And mm-hmm. then when I finally played it, I was like, oh, okay. It, it was one of those times where w- when Operation Rainfall was going on, and I actually played all three games involved with Operation Rainfall, the one I really liked was The Last Story. Or, uh, yeah. You know? like Last that Story was, was really creative. Yeah, that that one that was a, a gem of an RPG. And this one, Xenoblade Chronicles wasn't bad. It was just not my cup of tea exactly i'd say it was um, above average yeah i'm i'm glad that it exists oh absolutely if i had been reviewing it just on the wii i probably would have given it like four out of five hmm. uh just because i loved the i i loved the scope i loved the expansiveness of the experience i liked i liked the combat for the most part as i was saying because i like the mixing and matching of the party, which is catnip for me. Mm-hmm. I like, I, I think the story's fine. Mm-hmm. I think that Xenoblade Chronicles would have been right in that, just above Rogue Galaxy territory on the PS2. Like, yeah. it would have fit right in into that kind of PC milieu, or PS2 mm-hmm. milieu mm-hmm. that was coming out between, like, 2003, 2005. Mm-hmm. Definitely mm-hmm. better than Grandia 3, which... Was a real disappointment, though I did like its battle system. <laughs> one time, one instance in which the story really dragged down the game for me was mm. Grandia Three. But um, yeah, no, it was fine. It it was it was really hurt by the transition to 3DS, in my mm. opinion. That that's pretty much uh, our conclusion over at Kotaku as well. I noticed. Yeah, like it was just it was so technically hurt um <laughs> it was so much more less so much less attractive that a lot of the the scope got lost in it mm-hmm. and the ui wasn't great and it they it feels like they put everything into just making sure that that game got running at a stable frame rate <laughs> on the 3ds which even with the the new 3ds too. the new 3ds must have been a chore what they did, and you know, people who are really into a good JRPG will be like, "All right, sweet, I got Xenoblade Chronicles on my on my 3DS, and this is a great media experience." But if somebody came to me and said, 
recommend me an RPG, um, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I'd probably recommend Xenoblade Chronicles. I don't know. But you'd like, say do it thinking, on the Wii? <laughs> no, I was just thinking, like, if somebody recommended, asked me to recommend them a 3DS RPG, um, I'd... Fire Emblem? I would... Oh, Fire Emblem Awakening for sure. Yeah, yeah, I love that one. That's a strategy RPG. Uh, I guess Bravely Default is kind oh, of yeah. the, uh, is kind of the choice, but that one that one didn't really do anything for me either. God, I'm such a contrarian. Why don't, <laughs> why am I a hater? It makes me sad. Uh, well, because everybody loves Bravely Default. Uh, I uh, again, I, I I enjoyed it. I liked the throwback nature, but I didn't think it was the end all be all. Hmm. The sequel's not out, right? Actually, it is out in Japan, but I have not picked it up personally. What? Come on, yeah. Richard. You're Richard from Japan. Get on that stuff. So many games, so little time. <laughs> Gosh, so, many, so much to keep track of. All right, so is there anything you're looking forward to coming out uh, for the rest of the year? RPG-wise? Uh, mm. Ooh, that's a good question. Or I should say Japanese RPG-wise. Japanese RPG. You are Richard from Japan. Indeed. Um, gee, off the top of my head, not particularly. Um, what? You're not looking forward to Persona 5? Uh, is that confirmed for this year? Uh, I'm pretty sure it's coming out this year. If it is coming out this year, then absolutely. Uh, and, uh, well, I guess the... Uh, I, I swear Emblem it said Persona, 2015. Or, like, they haven't done a... That's true. Like, I, I, I felt like it's kind of all but assumed that it's coming out this year. Late well, that, this year. of course, I'd pick that up. Um, I almost, I almost guarantee it'll be December. <laughs> the new Fire Emblem. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward Ooh. to that. Yeah, new Fire Emblem. We'll have to have you on the show to talk about that one too. Yeah, um, but other than that, I'm, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head if there's any other really big ones coming. The SMT uh, Cross Fire Emblem. Oh yeah, that's true. That's coming too. That'll be interesting. I'm really. Yeah. In- did I? I've already mentioned this on the show. I'm really enjoying Persona Q. Oh, are you? So any looking... opportunity to get back into that universe is welcome to me. And it's <laughs> mash- Fire Emblem and Shin Megami Tensei, it's like mashing up two of my favorite things. It's going to be great. Make sure you're really, really happy. Yes. Uh, but yeah, uh, um, and then, well, you know, and then 15's always looming on the horizon. Mm, um, mm-hmm. you, you didn't play, you know, Hyperdimension Neptunia and the Vita's coming out. Oh, that's true. Uh, I didn't play any of the the Vita versions of the game, except for the uh, strategy RPG one, the noir game. And I actually really liked that one. I thought that one was a lot of fun. Really? I'm not one for strategy games, usually. Uh, Strategy RPGs, uh, other than Valkyria Chronicles, anyway. Fire Emblem? Um, There's my dirty little secret. I have never played a Fire Emblem. What? You didn't play Fire Emblem Awake? God. I didn't play any of them. One horrifying revelation after another, Richard. I know. Scary, right? So you gotta uh, play Awakening. No, that's what stop people talking say. right now. Go get your 3DS and start downloading it. I insist. <sighs> that's the best game on the damn 3DS, Richard. Okay, well, geez, that's joking. that's an opinion right there. That's that's that something is I'm my have opinion. To to heart. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> that is my hot take. Like I'm looking at my, I'm I'm, I'm thinking about my 3DS right now. Like I'm uh-huh. picturing it in my head, and I'm like, nope, can't think of a better game than Fire Emblem Awakening on that thing. I can't think of a game that I enjoyed more than that. So, great game. Well, there you go. Wow. Pulling out all the stops with recommendations.
Welcome back. Joining me now is Double Fine's Brad Muir, who created Massive Chalice, a new RPG strategy game that was recently released on Steam. And Brad, before we get started, I just want to pour one out for two dear departed uh, party members of mine, <laughs> Kale Chesthair Blackbane and Tancred Flamingo Blackbane, two brothers. <laughs> Oh my god! I love that they got like like those are some of the most ridiculous uh, nicknames in the entire game that that you could have pulled flamingo and chest hair. Like some of them are standard. Like there are a lot of like you know tough animal names and stuff, and they're like boar or whatever you know. But then there's flamingo as well. Oh. Well, flamingo is fancy. Yeah, he has yeah. blonde hair. He looks fancy. All right. He uh, he his, looked fancy, right? And his and his younger brother. Uh, Kale like went for the bald look, and he's got a, a big gray beard, would, a big, a, a great big bushy beard. Very few people choose to go for the bald look. You know, I think that that's uh, mm. that's genetic, sort of uh, playing you a bad hand. Do you think they gave each other those nicknames? I could, I could totally see that. Yeah, so actually, that's really awesome that you that you say that. Like, I I love how people get attached to their characters, even though they're pretty fleeting in the game. I like seeing players, like, get attached to them and then start, um, like, manufacturing additional narrative on top of, like, what's there. Because the, in terms of your heroes, there's there's very little sort of narrative in the game outside of, like, the random events. And those aren't guaranteed to actually happen to, like, all of your characters and stuff. So, yeah, I like that people make up stuff like that, you know, thinking about them. Like, yeah, giving each other nicknames and giving each other shit on the battlefield. Like, yeah, naming your brother Flamingo is pretty good, especially when it sticks. <laughs> so, th- let's talk a little bit about the game itself. So, it's a, as I already said, an RPG strategy game with kind of strong XCOM undercurrents. Mm-hmm. Um, we did a Game Dev Recipes yeah, yeah. about this game a while ago. Um, you said it was 40% XCOM. 20% Final Fantasy Tactics, so a little bit of Fire Emblem mixed in there with some some FTL and Valkyria Chronicles. These are all like great things uh, to have into one game. So tell me a little bit about how all of this kind of came together. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I've always been a huge fan of the original XCOM. Um, and it's it's kind of a bummer that up until the, the reboot, I felt like they had not really done that thing justice. You know, like it was... Uh, Terror from the Deep was sort of just like a reskinning of it, and then there was like, God, was it called Apocalypse? The third oh, yeah. one that wasn't was there. The, There's was a first person shooter, and then right? there was a first person shooter, and there was Enforcer. There were just I don't know some some very uh, not the best uses of that uh, of that license or that franchise. But the original one is the one that like really stuck in my mind. I played a ton of it, played through it several times. Like uh, I don't oh God, I'm going to date myself. I was probably in high school. Playing that game, um, totally loved it, and I've been surprised uh, that nobody's really done any kind of like riffs on that structure. You know, the the real feeling of like having a strategic kind of meta layer where you're managing a bunch of really like high level things, and then a very like human scale tactical layer where you're controlling like individual um, people. So you have something like Civilization where you know, you're, you're, it's all about the meta layer and you're controlling, like, armies and stuff. You never really feel like you're getting to know individual characters. And then on the flip side, you have things like Final Fantasy Tactics where it's, like, all about the human scale and you're controlling individual um, characters. But I really like the, 
the sense of like kind of fusing those things together that XCOM brought to the table where you're like you're kind of defending the entire world but then you're also doing it with a squad of like only a dozen characters at a time or whatever um, yeah I, I just I always really like that and I feel like um, not enough strategy games have tried to build on what they started like you know how long how long ago was that like 20, 20 plus years ago or something it's crazy well, the original XCOM came out in what the early nineties. Oh god, so. yes, yeah. Oh man, that's that's making me feel old. But uh, but yeah, I've had the idea for a long time to um, at least it kind of started as like, let's just you know, why isn't there a fantasy XCOM? Just I mean, that's you know, with more RPG stuff in it. Like I, it seemed like a slam dunk, and I was sort of sort of surprised that nobody had uh, nobody had really taken on that challenge, you know. Um, but I always um, I don't know. I hate just sort of like taking uh you know like like it's not a clone right like if you take uh an existing game design and you completely change the um the thematics you're gonna have some like mechanical things that that sort of flop out of it that are that are quite different right in this case like you have you have XCOM, which is like all futuristic and sci-fi and you have all ranged weapons so just by the nature of saying like let's make a fantasy XCOM, you do have a lot of mechanical things that fall out of that you're probably going to have a lot of melee combat and it, that's going to change things. And, you know, do you have cover? Do you need cover anymore? Like, cause not everybody is a ranged character. It's like, there's a lot of stuff that like falls out of it, which is, um, which is cool. But I, I really wanted to have a hook that was, that was unique, um, uh, to our game and that, that didn't, you know, so it wasn't just sort of like a carbon copy of like the XCOM, uh, sort of the overall XCOM design. And for that, like the, it took it took a while to sort of like find something that I that I really liked, but the the kind of core like the design uh, pillar was that I wanted your um, I wanted your party to get mixed up all the time, right? Like like I think a lot of people that play Final Fantasy Tactics or or Fire Emblem or um, or XCOM like they tend to just use the same characters every time, like for every battle they're just using the same characters, and even though those games um, have permadeath, I think that usually when one of your characters dies uh, to either like, you know, bad RNG or like a mistake that you made, um, they'll they'll like reload. They'll reload the game. Like people don't want to suffer those. Um, uh, yeah, people don't want to suffer a, a death of one of their favorite characters, so they'll just reload and they never have to deal with it. And I think that they're really missing out on like a good, <clears throat> um, like a really good opportunity that the game is presenting you. Like if you screw up and one of your key characters dies, trying to continue uh, without them and train up a new character and sort of fill that slot in your party is like a great opportunity to play the game in a slightly different way. Um, and I think that, yeah, people, I think a lot of people that, um, that do reload, they don't actually get to enjoy that part of those games, you know? So, so just the, that, that core thing of like, of like, how can we, how can we kill your characters basically was like, was like, you know, that was, that sort of began the search for the hook for the game was like, how can I, how can I mix up your party by like just removing or deleting characters that you're relying on and force you to rely on other characters? <clears throat> and then that sort of forces your party to be constantly rotating. And the the best way that I could come up with was that just like, you know, what if they age and die? Like, you know, it's it's just that simple. It's like something that's very easy to, to grasp. Um, the timeline of XCOM, like when you're on the, the Geoscape and you hit play, it's like hours are passing really fast as like the sun spins around the globe and stuff. And so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a huge leap to just be like, Oh, well, what if that was like, you know, days instead of hours, like then that would stretch into years and then all of your characters would age and then a bunch of them would pass away. Um, and then that would just 
really in a in a very like natural way it would force you to engage with the permadeath system um so yeah i i think that just starting with that and being like is this you know would this work is this a cool hook uh just kind of batting around the office and talking to people about it you know immediately all of these other systems kind of come out of it like uh like marriage and babies and you know what's the age of you know like what how old does somebody have to be before they can go to battle and then like do you you know do you allow um like yeah do you have menopause in the game like there are all these like weird questions that start like flying out of it and like right away i knew that like it was it, it was probably good enough to base the the entire game off of it as like one of the yeah i use the word pillars that's like such a dirty term i think because <laughs> that's um like i used to pitch to publishers a lot and uh they always want to know what your pillars are it's basically just like the foundations of your of your game like what are the most what are the most important things in your game and like yeah the the timeline and the aging characters are like some of the most important things in master chalice because it really brings you back to that sort of core design thing of a constantly constantly evolving tactical party it was my own experience has been that at first it really threw me off Mm -hmm. because i was these characters were coming and going so fast and it so i I, w- I would set up, you know, a couple regents, and then characters just kept popping up. And every time I went into battle, it felt like I had a, a whole new group. And so right. I w- they felt like cannon fodder, and right. less like people and more like cannon fodder. And the reason that I brought up old chest hair and flamingo was that they were the first kind of instance where I felt like I was able to attach myself to these characters right. because they kept popping up yeah. over and over yeah. again. They didn't die. Right. And I wasn't restarting, you know. They just yeah. kept coming back over and over yeah. again. because they're living. You know, it's like you probably, uh, you know, just a lot of it is through circumstance that you end up deploying a rather young character that's, like, in their teens. And then they do pretty well and they live and they gain some experience. And then they're going to be one of your better characters in the next battle and the next and the next and the next. And, um, you know, before you know it, you know, you've gone through, you've been playing for, like, a couple hours. And that, you know, chest hair is, like, has been in you know, five of those tactical battles in a row, except now, you know, he's bald with a huge beard. Um, but yeah, I think that's cool. I think that's cool that not all characters are memorable, right? It's like, um, yeah, it, it, it really it really lets them sort of uh, stick out in your mind. Um, another thing that we really wanted to do was get you not necessarily attached to the characters or just only attached to the characters, but also attached to their bloodline, like attached to their house. So all the all the characters have like, uh, sigil that is part of their house it's kind of like directly inspired by like the game of thrones houses and like they have mottos and stuff like that um and they all have like uh like iconic like two color pairs and so you kind of get used to what was their last name did you say blackbane blackbane so you get you see the blackbane flag you see like their sigil and you know their colors and so all the people that are of that bloodline they all have like the same sigil and the same colors and you you sort of always want to have black banes like in your party and you want to make sure that like their bloodline continues as you play through the game and stuff so it's like you're attached not only to like flamingo and chest hair but like also the uh the black bane bloodline you know it's like i, I kind of wanted it to be a, like a 50 50 mix where you're attached to characters but you're also attached to these bloodlines so that you're sort of caring about two things it also lets you care about um you're caring more about the individuals on the tactical layer, and then you're caring, uh, and then the flip side on the strategy layer, you're caring more about the bloodlines on the strategy layer. The Black Banes are my main family. They 
they're everywhere. They're always in my party. Yeah, it's cool. It's it's probably the the very first family that you uh, that you established as you were. I going. think they were. Yeah. 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 So they have the deepest roots. Mm-hmm. Um. So the first thing that jumped out at me was. At the outset, it feels like you only have three classes. So you got your your Kaberchak, who's he's like a battering ram, right? Yep. Um, yep. I've never was, seen. Yeah, we we kind of that was like a. I, I'm I'm most proud of that in terms of the three classes. The uh, the Kaberchak, mm-hmm. it's sort of like our melee, you know, kind of kind of standard typical melee tank class, like heavily armored. But in terms of the weapon, like we didn't want to just have like a like a sword and board or like. You know, a two-handed weapon that was sort of something that you'd seen before. I spent a lot of time trying to find something that would be, uh, you know, just be more unique. And uh, I, I've always loved those uh, those battering rams that the SWAT teams use. Um, our, our our director Andy Wood, he's English, and he call I guess they call that thing the master key in uh, in England. Um, so yeah, you know, it's just like a kind of a two-handed thing that you hold that's like just a big, super solid, like dense piece of metal. And they swing it and just like knock open doors with it. Um, and you know, looking at looking at that thing for inspiration, it's like, why couldn't we? You know, why couldn't we use this as like a cool medieval weapon? Um, and it also it also led us um, in a direction where the character is more about like stuns because it's like a blunt weapon, like more about stuns and knockbacks, like pushing characters around. Um, and I think that that felt really natural with that kind of a, that kind of a weapon. Um, and it, I think it also looks really cool. It looks it looks just very different, and you um, the kind of stance for the character is very different from something that you would see in a typical fantasy game as well. Um, and uh, I mean, it's not only cool looking, but it also uh, helps the silhouette of the character. The because that weapon is like very kind of like underslung, and they hold it sort of low. It really helps. Um, it really helps you differentiate like what the characters are. Sorry, I keep going off on tangents, cat. I don't know. No, it's sort okay. of my. <laughs> That's the point of a podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. On tangents. Just run around and, and talk about whatever. Next we can talk about Game of Thrones. Um, so the other two classes are kind of the crossbow person, and, but it's like a giant mechanical crossbow, yep. and then also the alchemist. Um, first of all, the first, the one thing that strikes me is that they're really non-traditional. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, how did you settle on like those three kind of archetypes and... Um, what kept you from like expanding outward and adding in like sword carriers and sure and other types of classes to kind of like flesh out the range? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we kind of you know we were just looking at like um, mechanical archetypes for for the um, for the tactical side. So just having like a heavy melee character like made a lot of sense. So that's where the caper jack came from, and then wanting to have a, a range character. That's that's where the hunter sort of fits single target range character um and with that our our sort of twist on it is that it's it's almost like an rpg it's like a shoulder mounted a big giant shoulder mounted crossbow that they use and then the um having like like i didn't want to have traditional magic uh in the game uh all of the sort of like magic things in the game come from uh come from the enemies come from the cadence it's like uh you know you sort of like research how they operate and what sort of, you know, I, we never really explain it, but like what sort of energy they use and use parts of their corpses and whatever to, to fashion some new weapons that have a little bit more like magical abilities, I would say. But yeah, I really wanted to stay away from magic as much as possible, mainly because I just think that 
you know, most fantasy games, just kind of throw a wizard in there. And then you've got fireballs and magic missiles and, and a lot of the, the more tropesy stuff. So just from trying to stay away from like, you know, tropesy kind of fantasy things, um, and, and stay away from some of the high fantasy stuff as well. Um, we just decided that that was kind of like a hard and fast rule for us that we didn't want to have of traditional magic on the side mainly because i thought it would muddy the waters between like like if like i wanted the enemy kind of like that mega man feeling of like stealing the enemy's technology and using it against them like like if we were going to have that as the primary magic thing i think that if you have that along with um kind of more traditional fireballs and magic missiles it just gets a little muddy um but yeah so the alchemist was sort of our placeholder or replacement for um for a more like magic user type type class so they're more of a like um uh melee character that fights with this big kind of giant hook but they make can use it use the hook like it's sort of like a like a highlight uh that was the inspiration for that that thrower thing uh it's sort of like a highlight glove i don't know what they call it damn oh no no wait i know what they call it it's called a zistra um <laughs> starts with an x uh <laughs> are you a former highlight no, player no, i had to look that up i had to look that up i had no idea what it was called but um Highlight is like that super weird sport uh, where you have this like big sort of I don't know what it's made out of. It's like a woven kind of hook sling thing, and uh, they fling this really hard ball against. I think it's kind of like racquetball. Uh, you like fling this really hard ball against the wall, and I I don't know. I guess they can fling it really really fast, and some people die playing highlight. It's super dangerous. <laughs> but, I know about highlight because of Mad Men. Oh, did I? Oh, I did not. I gave up on Mad Men. Oh, I'm so bad. I'm like outing myself. Jeez, Brad. I know, I know. You know what? It was depressing me way too much. Um, it's getting like like about. I think I made it about halfway, and it was just I was getting too depressed at the end of every episode because well, like an... everybody's like everybody's pretending to be something they're not, and they're all super unhappy, and it's like so sad. And I was like, I can't deal with this. <laughs> There's an episode where one of where somebody's coming in and pitching a highlight league, so that's where I heard about it for yeah. the first time. Oh, it's a, it's a really weird sport, but but yeah. So the alchemists like uh, so they fight with this thing. It's sort of like got got blades on it and uh, they're they're like a melee ca- class but um they can also fling these explosive potions which gives us some like medium range aoe in there so so yeah it's like you primarily have your like your melee class your range your single target range class and then your medium range aoe class and then those are kind of like the you know it, it, we didn't really want to have a healer that was another like i think if we, if we were to add a fourth class it would probably be like a healer but i always try to stay away from the kind of mmo trinity if i can like in my designs just because i feel like um i i don't know i feel like it's kind of stale and it's very rote and it gets like it, it just feels a little bit played out i would say um where you have those just like super hard rolls and like you know when your healer is healing like every turn i think it feels a little bit weird like i don't i don't really love that kind of a system um so yeah, so we, we tried to stay away from that as well. So so yeah, it was really it came from mechanics. I would say the combination of the mechanics wanting to fill those roles, and then also stay away from like uh, uh, traditional magic and sort of traditional fantasy um, stuff. Um, oh, we did have a dude with a sword. So we did have four classes originally um, when we were doing it. Uh, so the fourth class was called the Vanguard and had the sword that was like a can't remember, oh it was really cool. We were calling it a like a whistle sword. It was like a sword that had a bunch of holes in it. It could like swing it over his head, and it would make like different sounds, different noises. We kind of wanted him to be more like a um, 
like a buffer, like 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 a buffer debuffer type class mixed with a melee character. But um, there was a little bit too much overlap, and uh, when we talk about the hybrid class system, it it really exploded the tree out. So um, when you marry two characters together, you end up with um, their children. If the if the parents are different classes, the children will be a hybrid class. And if you do the matrix, it actually depends. Um, you get a different hybrid class. So say you, I'm explaining this super terribly. It's a podcast, though. I can ramble around, right? Um, so if you if you retire a caberjack, and you um, marry them to an alchemist, so it's a caberjack household, and you marry an alchemist into it, you end up with a um, what's called a blast capper, which is like a caberjack that fights with some like alchemist. Uh, explosive potions and stuff. Um, but if you do it the other way around, you have an alchemist house, and you marry a caberjack into that, you end up with a brutalist, which is um, uh, an alchemist that has like more more melee attacks and like more melee versatility. Um, so it's like they sort of influence each other. Uh, so it's like the AB version of the of the hybrid class is different from the BA version of the hybrid class. So if you do the matrix, we have three core classes and then six hybrid classes. But if you blow it out to uh, four core classes, you end up with uh, 12 hybrids. And it really, like, you know, just sort of, that was like a pure production issue. Um, not to mention the, like, balancing issues and all the other things that, that pop out of that. But just doing all of the, um, all of the animation, um, all the art and animation and sound effects and, and, and visual effects and all the stuff that goes into, like, doing a class... Um, and then doubling the number of hybrid classes. It just didn't seem like it was going to be feasible. So we ended up cutting that one and just um, having the alchemist focus more on melee so that we had two melee classes and one range class. So it's a matter of kind of, resor- of resources then? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's also like, I mean, just in terms of, you know, sometimes, like, just because you remove something doesn't mean it's, like, necessarily less than or worse. You know, like at the end of the day, like once we got the hybrid system in place, I don't think that I was really missing an additional class because um, more is definitely not always better. But um, but yeah, there were some cool ideas. Like I was sort of bummed to see it go. But um, but yeah, once we got near the road to finally in the game, it was like I felt a lot better about about not having it. Um, you know, you do have those hybrid classes, but. The, like I have a trick shot um, archer who can shoot like explosive rounds. Mm-hmm. Very very useful when you yeah. kill those those tree things. Yeah yeah the cradles the cradles explode and then you've got like God, three sealed I hate those guys. Yeah. Oh. Um, but the hybrid classes still have the same kind of look as right. the, the base classes. How do you respond to the pe- uh to people who might say, well, that seems a little repetitive. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, for sure that would be like, that's um, like just a raw production issue, you know, mm-hmm. just like having, um, that was sort of our way around it, is that we just modified their armor a little bit so that they would have, like in the case of the trick shot, they're going to be wearing like the hunter armor, um, but they'll have like some of the alchemists like explosive potions sort of hanging off of their armor and stuff. And that was, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's tough. <laughs> it's tough, like doing um, six hybrids and and having their having uh, totally unique skeletons and models and everything and animations for them was just a little bit outside of our scope. So, yeah, no. I wish that all of those could be like fully unique classes. 
you know, you see something like Final Fantasy Tactics and each of those each of those jobs has like totally unique art and unique um unique abilities and all the all unique stuff. And that's uh yeah, that would have been awesome. How big is your team? It was um it was anywhere from like three and then we were probably at peak maybe like ten or eleven. Hmm. But it was not um it was not that big for long, you know. That was just like I would say at the peak of production when we were doing we had like yeah, when we were really cranking on the art and yeah, that was probably like our, our full staff. So correct me if you're wrong if I'm wrong, but your background, so the the last game you made was I you worked on Iron Brigade. Yep. Which was a tower kind of a three D tower defense game. Mm-hmm. And then the game before that, were you working on um, Psychonauts? Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked so on your... Brutal Legend was before that, and then um, and then Psychonauts before that, yeah. So puzzle games, platformers, um, some tower defense. So this kind of strategy RPG area is kind of new territory for you, even though it seems like you enjoyed that uh, that genre, what's it been like kind of transitioning into that as, from the perspective of a designer? Um, I, I, it's cool. It's always cool to try new stuff. And I think that um, Tim is like really supportive of, of people at the studio that get like inspired by a particular thing. And for me, like, you know, that was, that was primarily XCOM, but a lot of these other, uh, a lot of these other games were like super inspirational to me. Um, it, yeah, it's super fun and challenging to take on a new thing, but it's also like I wish that we had more experience at times. You know, it, we definitely have to learn some hard lessons. Where you know, like if we only made tactical RPGs and this was our fifth one, uh, there's a lot of like knowledge that would be built up. You know, even if we were to make another one now, like we've learned so much from like from making a bunch of mistakes uh, on Massive Chalice that I think that it would go much smoother and we'd end up with like a better game in the end. So yeah, I think that it, it definitely costs you when you have to like um, go down a bunch of roads, and you you know you've never made that kind of game before, and you, you don't know what you're doing. But um, but yeah, we talked to some people that had done it before, like especially um, Jake Solomon, uh, who was the lead on the new XCOM. Like I talked to him quite a bit, and he you know he gave us a bunch of like uh, advice about making that kind of game. Um, and that certainly helped. Like I think that helped us avoid some some dead ends. But yeah, we did not. We were not mistake free on it for sure because we just didn't have the experience. You know, it's like we're only really drawing on uh, our experience playing those games and not making those games. So yeah, we we definitely screwed up a, a decent amount as we went through it. What were some of the hard lessons that you learned, if you don't mind sharing? Um, I think like underestimating the amount of UI design necessary to make the game function um and and more importantly i would say like uh tactical combat feedback that was something that like i knew was important but in terms of just like having making absolutely sure that we're like putting the camera in the right place and then we have really good sequence um combat text where it's like okay the damage number is is like red and it flies out the right of the the guy the character's HP flag and then like his statuses are like you know like buffs are like fly out to the right and debuffs fly out to the left and you know and then the battle cry when a character gets a kill comes out like to the upper left and it's like all sequenced very um, very like specifically 
that was something that I was just like not prepared to spend as much time on as we did. You know, it just sort of seemed like I, I and I think that that comes from working on uh, working on action games where a lot of that is just obfuscated and it's just based on feel. How much damage? Like Iron uh, Iron Brigade's a great example. Like just how much damage your weapons are doing and like what's happening and when things are dying and whatever. You just sort of rely on more like the visceral feel of playing the game in order to get that stuff across and the uh, uh, sound effects and animation and all that stuff. But in um, in a turn-based game, it's like you really want that like super, super explicit, like this is exactly what's happening. Like this character damaged this other character for this exact amount and then applied this debuff to it. It's like you want to know every little detail of that. So um, yeah, I think that that was something that we... I kind of thought was going to be relatively simple, but we ended up spending like a ton of time on. And then, uh, yeah, UI in general, I would say was, was tough. You know, there's just a ton of UI in the game, a lot of different screens. Um, it took a lot of, a lot of iteration to try to get that right. And I still don't, you know, I, I, there's, there's always room for improvement, uh, with things like that. Uh, I don't think that for the people that really want it, I don't think that we show enough like numbers and like exact, uh, exact, like, you know, what is the, the old age buff, like how, or the, well, I guess it's a buff and a debuff, you know, the old age status, like what exactly is that doing to your character? You know, we just sort of tell you that it's like, oh, it's like decreased fertility and it's uh, decreased sight range and it's increased intelligence, but by how much it's like, we don't really, you know, you can't really drill into that. Uh, part of that was just that we knew it was going to be a console game as well. And it, it's kind of tough to like, explain all that stuff like and still keep it readable keep the font size to uh, a point where you can actually like read it and not clutter the the shit out of the screen but um but yeah i i I haven't really seen people complain about that too much um but yeah i think that's something that that we would take a better stab at uh if we were to to do it over again so you massive chalice was in early access for quite a while. Yeah. What kind of feedback did you get that like made an impact on the game? Um, the we we kind of wanted to do the hybrid class system. It actually wasn't in place when we launched the game, and that was one of the biggest um, criticisms was that it was like only three classes. You know, the people were it didn't really matter. Uh, the class of the character that you married into the family didn't have uh, any effect on. Uh, like the children's uh, skill tree or or what kind of equipment they use and stuff. So uh, that was a big, I think that was a big improvement that addressed one of the like major concerns. Um, balancing was a huge issue too. Like I'm I'm really glad that we went through early access, if only to like get the game in a better place balance wise. Um, it, it it was incredible to like put it into early access and then with Twitch just like immediately watch people stream the game. And just like get this instant feedback from players was like totally insane. Like I, I was not, I was not really prepared for that. You know, just like how tight the feedback loop was. It was there, and we could you know jump into the chat room and like talk to the people who are streaming and like get their opinions on the game. See, see sort of like what parts of the UI they're they're missing and they're not getting. You know, it was like it was like one of the best focus tests we've ever had because the the person who's streaming is like. Like, like, rather than, you know, bringing in a focus tester and having them play the game, like, um, you know, in a lab or, like, in your office or, or whatever, a very, like, unnatural environment, you're actually, like, watch, watching 
somebody play the game like in their natural environment and, it, and it's super cool and then you can ask them questions and they are like super excited that developers are there like like you know looking in on them and stuff so that was really cool like just uh to help us balance the game um i'm trying to think of other things that people come oh difficulty for sure like i mean i guess that's related to balance but we launched with like a single difficulty mode which i, I believe is like the one in the middle um which we ended up calling hard uh, and it was just much too hard for a lot of players. Like um, that was that was one of the major criticisms. Like we didn't have difficulty modes. I kind of wanted to get the first one right first before we added in a bunch of others, just so that we could make sure that all of the feedback that we were getting was about you know like like this single difficulty mode. So that you know uh, if you if you don't do that, then everybody who is giving you balanced feedback. You have to constantly ask them, like, you know, well, okay, well, were you playing it on, on, on the brutal difficulty? Were you playing it on normal? Like, what were you playing it on? Um, and so, yeah, like, like adding that in was, I think, a big, a big bonus. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of other things that, that people really harped on. There were some things that, you know, we just couldn't do anything about because of scope reasons. And I think that, um, you know, like the number of enemy types, I would have loved to see that get expanded, but that was more of a production issue. Um, yeah, people people just wanted more stuff. You know, they just wanted more more classes, uh, more enemies, more uh, more tech to unlock, more items to use. You know, just just more, 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 more. <laughs> and I, but I guess if that's the only complaint somebody has is that they liked what's there, but they just wanted more of it, it's like. That's fine. Like I feel like we did a good job. Um, yeah. You'll forgive me. Um, I recently wrote a fairly lengthy feature about early access, and it's fairly well known that Double Fine had some trouble in that regard recently. Sure. Did you find that uh, the fallout from that was impacting people's perception of Massive Chalice? Did you have to work harder to kind of regain their trust? Yeah, it was. That was tough. I mean. I think that there was a lot of negativity um, when we originally went into early access. Um, it was tough. Like, I think one of the things I learned, which is a really unfortunate lesson, is that, you know, people are, uh, once their mind's made up, it's, like, really hard to sway them. And a lot of people just aren't uh, aren't willing to have their mind changed, and they're not willing to even read what you write. Uh, that was rough because like when we went into early access, that was like in October, um, we had like a reasonably complete game. I would say like 85 to 90% complete. Like it was playable from start to finish. Like, um, all the major features were in place. Um, it was reasonably balanced. I mean, there were some issues, but it was, it was reasonably balanced. You could do a complete playthrough. Um, and, you know, we very clearly stated, like, here are the things that we're going to add to the game, you know? And a lot, and some of the things that we added were, like, above and beyond what we kind of initially stated. We were like, you know, we're going to translate the game, we're going to add the difficulty modes, we're going to put the iron mode in, we're going to, you know, like, here's the list of, like, it's like five or seven things. Um, you know, we're like, outside of this, like, we consider the game to be complete. And then we just, you know, set out to do those things while also incorporating other other feedback and, and doing even more than we said. Um, but yeah, there were a bunch of people that just wanted to come and be dicks. Like, God, straight up. Just people that just wanted to come and just, like, be dicks because of some other shit that had happened. And that was, 
that was really unfortunate, especially for the, you know, for the team to work so hard on it. And like Double Fine is pretty segregated, you know, like, um, uh, nobody on my team worked on Space Base and nobody on Space Base, the Space Base team worked on, worked on my game. So it was like, I, yeah, it was really unfortunate to, to see the game get, uh, punished for, I think, what had happened on that other project. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like, at the same time, like I kind of understand and I see, I see people's points. I, I do think that people get way too fired up about it, you know, is that it's like, um, yeah, it's like nobody got injured. You know what I mean? Like, like nothing really major happened. I don't know. It's like, I think people took it, uh, way too far and they took it too seriously and they said some really, really mean things. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Like, I wish that that could have gone a little bit differently. Uh, but yeah, I mean, ultimately it's like, it's not under my control, you know, like that, that part is just totally outside my control. And we just tried to interact with and listen to the people that were just there to talk about the game. You know, it's like, just, uh, we tried always to, to steer the conversation back to the game and sort of point to like our goals and like our objectives in early access and just sort of just try to be as positive as possible about it, you know, and just really, really try to like prove that we were going to do it correctly. What I believe is, is at least one correct way to use early access, which is just to, you know, get your game almost all the way complete, clearly list what you're going to do and then give a time frame for when you're going to do it and then just do it. You know, like I, it was weird, like all the, um, uh, and, and given the state of the game when we went into early access, I was kind of shocked that people were like naysaying, you know, that people were like kind of um, claiming that we wouldn't be able to do the things that we were about to do. Well, people have been burned so much by early access. Yeah, I guess so. It is it is a really weird, it is a weird thing. It's a weird And last year was a particularly bad year for it. Yeah, that's true. There was like, was that game called Towns? Am I thinking of the right game? There were Possibly. there were some yeah there were a couple of people that just kind of ghosted out of early access and that um, yeah yeah it's it's a bummer I don't know um, so would you do it again uh, would I do it again it's so weird because I think the game is better because we did it for sure but would I want to go through like the um, the sort of like um, mental brutalization that happened because of it like no absolutely not like i would not want to do it because of that um you know like i don't yeah that wow that's really hard that's a hard trade-off for me because i think that you do end up with something that's better but at the expense of like mental health and that really sucks like i don't um yeah because it's like it got to the point where i didn't really even want to go to the steam forums like i would just like, I made it a point to go there every day, but that was, like, one of the worst parts of my day because mm-hmm. there would just be all this, like, negativity up there and it was all outside of my control and stuff. But I wanted to harvest the good parts about it, and there were lots of good parts about it. People posting their, you know, thoughts about their playthroughs, thoughts about the balance, uh, suggestions. Um, yeah, so, yeah, would I do it again? I guess, I guess no, 
I would I would trust my gut because also we you know I who knows what the game would have looked like if we had just done it done it internally during that that part you know um, would it have been better I don't know I feel like it would have been a little bit better if we did it um, you know the way that we did it but I don't know that for sure <laughs> you know um, yeah I don't know yeah I would I would I would uh, prefer to not engage with that level of like toxicity if if I could. So um when it comes to Massive Chalice itself, do you have additional content planned uh kind of maybe an expansion pack build out on some of the stuff that you had to cut because right. uh, in the first round because of production constraints and that kind of thing? We don't have anything planned right now, but we definitely have ideas like like things that hit the cutting room floor. Um, and I think it's like really ripe for, um, a kind of like old school PC expansion pack, you know, um, I completely agree. Yeah. It's like, I think it's, you know, just the, the sort of like old, like blizzard and Fraxis kind of like, uh, expansion packs where it's like, you know, you want to play the whole game, uh, starting from the beginning, you know, like, uh, cause I, I do feel like a lot of people that play master chalice, like they're going to have to restart the game at least once. Um, just cause they're gonna, they're, there's a pretty steep learning curve and you're gonna, um, probably make some bad decisions and then end up like with either like under leveled heroes or no heroes or whatever. So, um, or heroes of all one class, or heroes of all one class. Yeah. what happened to me. Oh, that did. Did you end up, did you end up getting out of that? It was all hunters. Okay. Um, well, my solution was just to go and do the research, the find more heroes, find right, more heroes. Right. And then I would get a new baseline of like Haber Jacks and Alchemists. And cool. I still have a severe shortage of Alchemists, mm-hmm. but I, I've got a lot more. Um, I've got some Shadow Jacks. I've got lots cool. of Shadow Jacks cool. now, which is great. That, and that totally makes sense, right? Because you're, gonna, you're probably going to be marrying those hunters into the, the Haber Jack family. And then, yeah, you'll end yes. up with Shadow, shadow Jacks. I like- They're like cheetahs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they all share the same genetic code. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. We don't. Yeah, like I. That's what I would like to do is like a really beefy, um, a really beefy expansion pack, which kind of invites you to to start the game over completely, even though you're very familiar with it. And you know, like having like a fourth class and a couple more enemy types, um, some new tech, uh, you know, some uh, like a new environment, like you know, just a little bit more of everything, kind of put into the mix. I think would make the game significantly better. Also, it's like, it is a pretty procedural game. So when you just have more uh, content to be randomly pulled, it's just like, it makes the entire experience less repetitive. And so, yeah, I think that that, um, that would go a long way for the game, but it would, it would be pretty expensive the way that I would want to do it. It would be pretty expensive. And that's, that's a bummer. Cause I do think a lot of times people look for those like um, quick, I don't know what you want to call them, like quick fix DLC things, kind of like, you know, small little stuff that is like easy to produce and people will still pay for. Um, but I, I just don't, I just feel like if you're going to do it, you should just like do it for real. Um, and I think the, the iron brigade expansion is very much like that. The, uh, you know, like whole new environment, a bunch of new levels, um, new gear, new, you know, just like, uh, you know, tons of new dialogue, like all that stuff. Like that's, that's how I would want to do it um, if we were to do it. Well, I will look forward to it. And you can look forward to my Massive Chalice review, which should be up by the time that this podcast goes up. 
So go check it out on usgamer.net. Brad Muir, where can we find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter most of the time. I I am like not really a social media person, or I wasn't. Uh, but yeah, I'm on Twitter like all the time. It's uh, at Mr. Muir, M R M O O E A R. It's sort of like a dumb joke about my last name. Um, so yeah, yeah, check me out there. Um, and then you can shoot me an email, uh, Brad at doublefine.com. Uh, don't spam me, please. <laughs> but but <laughs> that is, that is just no, like, our audience is great. <laughs> that's nice. just like my real email address. So like, uh, feel free to send something over there. I'm pretty crappy. Uh, I, I think Twitter is better just because like, I love that it's only 140 characters. Cause I feel like sometimes when I'm like, Hey, like you can send me an email. People, uh, have emailed me like, like they want advice or, or something and they, they email like, you know, like a dissertation, like, like this, this novella. And I'm like, Oh my God, like I, I barely have time to read this, let alone like dissect it and, uh, and give you like a, you know, really, um, well thought out response. So I think that Twitter is so good. Just, I, I love that like limiting super short, uh, super short format. Uh, that's, that's more than likely that's like the best way to, to get a hold of me. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Brad, and good luck going forward. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me, Kat. All right, so that's the end of our episode. So, Richard, where can I find you? Uh, you can find me, of course, over on Kotaku.com or on Twitter at Biggest in Japan, because I am the one man alive arrogant enough to take the name. The biggest in Japan. Yep. And can I find you on Twitter? Or, yeah, that's my, that is my Twitter. Oh my god! Like you know, it's seven. It's eight in the morning. I'm a little like out of it. So yeah, we're having fun me. here. Uh, it's it's midnight for me. It's eight in the morning for Cat. You know exactly. So and I'll see you a little later when I'm in Japan during the summer. So that'll be oh, exciting. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. And of course, you can find us over on usgamer.net. Go check out our YouTube channel, usgamer.net. Check out our Twitch channel, usgamer.net, where I'm doing a long play of Star Trek Judgment Rights, and it's awesome. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, I I, uh, I haven't dropped by. What what episode are you on? Um, I am about to embark on Voids, so the one where the Enterprise gets trapped in the nebula and mm. gets disabled, and you have to wander around the Enterprise solving puzzles. Ah, always a fun one. And the one after that is Museum Heist. Or That's Museum my Heist. favorite. That's the, the one Heist. where uh, you're Scotty for most of it. Yes, yes. That is oh. my absolute favorite level in that game. Isn't it Chekhov and Scotty? Yeah, yeah. Because but Chekhov wants Chekhov? to go down and get vodka. <laughs> <laughs> because Russian stereotypes, everybody. So anyway, check out, our, check out that. The first two parts are over on our YouTube channel, US GamerNet. And for Richard and for Brad Muir and for myself, thanks for dropping by. We'll be back next week to talk about the 20th anniversary of Earthbound with Bob Mackey, who's making his long-awaited return to the show. And until then, happy adventuring. (laughs) 